the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Sam Maupin engineering. Today we'll hear from Joel Rosenberg in the latter part of this first hour. And we'll close out the show with another excerpt from Heaven and Nature Sing, the um, Advent devotional by Hannah Anderson. So that's coming up. Later in today's program, first to look at some of the news, uh, freshman orientation took place as members of Congress are headed back to school. It was exciting to head to a new school building, meet some new teachers, walk around the school with my dot matrix printed class schedule to figure out where freshman science class would meet and locate the room upstairs for German. I got to meet upperclassmen and talk to a senior cheerleader. Well, that's not quite how it went. These were members of Congress. You come to a new building, albeit a powder white one with hulking dome. You meet the new teachers. And no, we're not referring to the press corps. You walk around to figure out where your offices and committee rooms are. Keep in mind that the U.S. Capitol itself has 540 rooms. You speak with upperclassmen, though some of these men and women are called committee chairs. Uh, If they lead a House Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, they are called cardinals. The senior class presidents uh, will speak to you, often key members of the leadership. But you can join lots of different groups and not get sneered at. The Afghanistan caucus, the um, Agitourism caucus, uh, go find Representative Andy Barr. He may invite you to join the Bourbon caucus. Yes, apparently there is one. Although you could also join the Rum caucus, the Small Brewers caucus, and there is, in fact, a soccer caucus and it makes you wonder why they don't get the people's business done not as much snickering at um, at that one these days especially since the u.s just defeated iran one to zero in gutter and advanced to the next world cup well it is uh, said that congress is is a lot like high school that's because all of life is a lot like high school that's why freshman orientation is so similar to what most of us endured at the age of 14 15 although these are at least presumably more mature adults uh, braces, wired uh, teeth, uh, pockmarks, those are all gone. This year's incoming freshman class elected representative-elect Russ Fry, Republican from South Carolina, to be class president. Very similar to what goes down in high school, every member of Congress is assigned a number based on their seniority. So there are the cool kids, and then there's everybody else. Representative-elect um, Ryan Zinke from uh, Montana has some seniority over other freshmen. That's because Montanans first elected Zinke to the House in 2014. Former President Trump then tapped him to serve as the Interior Secretary. Uh, He held that role for two years, then departed government. After Montana gained a House seat, thanks to the census and uh, reapportionments, he ran for the new uh, district in western Montana and won. So since he served in the House before the uh, scores and seniority bump, he won't rank alongside the other freshmen just entering Congress. That likely means that he scores a more choice piece of congressional real estate for an office. So, again, you you know, you kind of are popular, less popular. It's based on other more superficial things, but it's not altogether uh, dissimilar. 
All that to say that, yes, it was freshman orientation for new members of Congress in Washington earlier today. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives today voted overwhelmingly to prevent a nationwide freight rail strike. The vote 290 to 137, and it adopted the tentative agreement that unions and railroad negotiated in mid-September under the supervision of the Biden administration with no modifications. In a separate vote, the House narrowly approved a resolution to amend the tentative agreement to include seven days of paid sick leave, a bonus gift to the unions. Uh, That vote, 221 to 207, almost strictly along party lines. Well, here's how the House set up um, the votes. In the first vote on a joint resolution to adopt the tentative agreement negotiated by labor leaders and railroad under the supervision of the Biden administration in mid-September. Well, that agreement had been ratified already by the membership of eight of the 12 unions and had been approved by a majority of the total number of workers who voted. Nearly all Democrats voted for the resolution, with only eight voting against it. Seventy-nine Republicans voted for it, 129 against it. Next, the House voted on a concurrent resolution, House Concurrent Resolution 119, which amended the tentative agreement to include a provision about seven days of paid sick leave. It instructs the parties to negotiate how those seven days would be implemented. It says that if no agreement is reached on these details within 30 days, the matter will go uh, will go to binding arbitration, which must be completed within 60 days of the resolution's enactment. Unlike the first vote on this resolution, it was nearly party line with only three Republicans voting for it. Well, the second resolution is an effort to um, by progressives rather to give organized labor a sweetheart deal that the independent recommendations have already rejected. The president's emergency board uh, that heard both sides of the arguments and released its findings in August concluded that the sick leave should be left to negotiate at the local level, which is how it is currently arranged until the progressive version came up in the House. Well, both resolutions now go to the Senate, which is expected to act quickly. A strike becomes legal on the 9th of December if no agreement is reached before then, and disruptions to service could begin as early as this weekend for some shipments. Senator Sanders is stewing for a fight over sick leave, falsely repeating that all rail workers currently receive zero six days. That's uh, sick days, rather. That's not accurate. He blocked an effort by Senator Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina, and Roger Wicker from uh, Mississippi, which isn't at all Massachusetts, uh, to prevent a rail strike via congressional action in September, making the same complaints. Well, Republicans uh, are facing off with the Democrats on this vote, which is... uh, Pending very shortly. Meanwhile, House Democrats have chosen Representative Hakeem Jeffries to follow Nancy Pelosi and leading Democrats in the most uh, the next congression uh, congressional session as minority leader. Jeffries is 52 years old. He's a New York Democrat, a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Budget Committee, as well as chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. He is avidly anti former President Trump, has painted Republicans as extreme MAGA Republicans who um, wish to criminalize abortion care, uh, as if abortion and care go together, in Social Security, undermine democracy, and has repeatedly questioned the result of the 2016 election as an election denier. Although if you deny that election, it's actually okay, you get a pass. Humbled to be elected incoming House Democratic leader, he said Wednesday in a Twitter post, ready to get to work. Well, leftist groups and Democrats celebrated his promotion. Media's Touch, a progressive political action committee, predicted that he would be the GOP's worst nightmare. I guess it, my uh, guess is it'll be a little less than that, but he will be the next minority leader in the House, replacing Nancy Pelosi. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Republicans voted to keep airmarks for annual spending bills when they take control of the House next year, marking a significant victory for appropriators and swing district members and a defeat for conservatives intent on reining in spending on pet projects for lawmakers. Well, the 158-52 closed-door vote by the GOP conference Confirmed by two people familiar with the vote means the Republican leaders can bring spending bills to the floor next year that contain lawmaker-directed community project funding. In the fiscal 2022 spending bill, there are $9.7 billion in such airmarks for members of both parties. Republicans had banned airmarks when they controlled the House in 2011, arguing they led to waste and higher budget deficits. They still do. But the practice was revived by Democrats in 2022 in the spending bill with provisions to increase transparency. And swing district candidates heavily promoted their ability to bring back tax dollars back home. So now they're getting their payback. Meanwhile, Twitter owner, CEO and CEO Elon Musk on Wednesday acknowledged that prior to his takeover, the obvious reality was that Twitter had interfered in elections through its content moderation policies. Well, his explosive assertion came in response to comments made by Yoel Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, who indicated the social media platform was not uh, safer under the Tesla CEO leadership. Roth was uh, speaking at a Knight Foundation conference. That was earlier this week when he explained why he resigned from Twitter, accusing Musk of running the company like a dictator. One of my limits was if Twitter uh, starts being ruled by dictatorial edict rather than by policy, they're no longer in need for me in my role doing what I do, Roth told Reuters. Well, as the head of trust and safety, he was responsible for key content moderation discussions, including banning former President Donald Trump from the platform and suppressing the New York Post's coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop story. His decision to leave the company was part of a mass exodus of Twitter employees who left over disagreements with Musk's free speech absolutism vision and were laid off in harsh cost cutting measures enforced by the billionaire. Well, Twitter's constant moderation policies have been harshly criticized by free speech advocates, particularly on the right, who've been accusing the company of enforcing its rules against conservatives in a one sided manner. The suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story happened in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election and was believed by many conservatives to have been motivated by a desire to shield then candidate Joe Biden from from scrutiny over his family's foreign business dealings. Well, Twitter has shown itself to be not safe for the past 10 years and has lost, well, user trust. The past uh, team of trust and safety is a disgrace, so it doesn't have any right to judge what is being done now. They had a chance, but they sold their souls to a corporation. That was a quote from one user commenting on Reuters coverage of Roth's remarks. Exactly, Musk wrote in reply. The obvious reality, as longtime users know, is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections. Musk didn't elaborate on how Twitter interfered in elections, but promised that Twitter 2.0 will be far more effective, transparent and even handed. Twitter did not immediately reply for more details, but they are expected to be forthcoming. Well, the U.N. has renamed monkeypox. Evidently, the World Health Organization has little to do with the United Nations primary health agency. They can waste time wringing its hands over a decades old name, worrying that it might offend uh, woke scolds. But on Monday, the WHO released a statement noting that it is officially changing the name of monkeypox to mpox. 
out of concern that the uh, or the original name might be perceived as being discriminatory. Uh, talk about a classic case of projection. Why do leftists associate monkeys with race? One wonders. Well, the monkeypox spread across the globe, primarily the Western world, where it had been essentially non-existent and uncomfortable reality was effectively avoided by much of the mainstream media and the World Health Organization. The pox generally spreads among uh, homosexuals who are known to be highly sexually promiscuous. And this proved an embarrassment, uh, an embarrassing fact for the World Health Organization, which, like the, the, uh, the rest in the uh, in the group, deemed the community as a special victim class that deserves preferential treatment, even if it undermines the health of the members of the of the group. While dubiously claiming the renaming of monkeypox was a dis, uh, to disassociate it with racism and discrimination, a more likely motive is to dis- disassociate the name from a disease that is primarily impacting one particular sexual group. California's ongoing drought and water shortages of farmers in the Golden State warning of negative impacts to American food supply chains. 2022 has been an especially bad year for crops in California's San Joaquin Valley, often referred to as America's fruit basket. The primary culprit for the bad growing season has been lack of water. Farmers in the region depend upon water from the Colorado River, which supplies upwards of two thirds of the area's water needs. J.B. Hamby of the Imperial Irrigation District Board of Directors observes that we need to ensure that Americans are fed by food produced in America. And the more we continue to offshore and outsource our food supply puts us in an increasingly vulnerable and weak position if we want to maintain full reliability of food in our grocery stores. If farmers are unable to meet production demands, then grocery uh, companies will be forced to seek produce elsewhere from more reliable sources like Mexico and China. One possible solution is for California to build more water storage facilities, something the state has not done since the 1960s, before the state's population and water demands ballooned and also before it became a one-party state. Schools are giving better grades to girls. The left's embrace and promotion of the Marxist-derived ethic of equity has infected institutions across the board, but none more so than America's schools. A recently released study found that when it comes to academic grades, females are doing better than their male counterparts. But um, uh, backed into uh, these um, superior grades is the woke equity dynamic at play, where boys and girls are not being judged simply by their academic merit, but also by their gender. To put the results of the study in a nutshell, teachers are giving higher grades to girls than boys because of a growing climate of anti-male prejudice. The study was conducted on 40,000 students, age 15 to 16, who took standardized tests that were then blindly scored. The gender of the student was not known by the uh, the grader. The scores show that while girls on average scored better in language than male students, the boys scored on average better in math. However, when teachers graded the tests, knowing the gender of the students in both cases, the female students were awarded better scores than the males. As schools have become more feminized, elevating feminism while degrading masculinity as toxic, it's not surprising that girls made uh, would find greater preferential treatment. Now, one would assume that that would not be the case in a meritocracy like public education, but sadly, that is apparently not the case. The Senate advanced the Radical Respect for Marriage Act. Former President Trump takes a sharp GOP criticism over meeting with a white nationalist. And Democrat Virginia Representative Donald McEachin has died at 861. The World Health Organization renamed, renamed monkeypox to impox, citing racist stigma. And a Buffalo supermarket killer pled guilty to terrorism and murder. 
President Biden has boosted the U.S. effort to stem sexual violence in war zones. And stranger than fiction, a woman has been sued after her microwavable macaroni took more than three and a half minutes to cook. It was intolerable. Well, severe uh, supercell storms have ripped through the south, spawning dangerous tornadoes, wicked weather there. In the hot seat, GOP uh, plans to grill President Biden's judicial nominees on their handling of dangerous criminals. And freight strikes uh, are a fear. Catastrophic disruptions to the supply chain is possible as a rail strike continues to loom despite the vote earlier today. And what may be a blueprint for 2024, Governor Ron DeSantis penned a book on ongoing um, ongoing after rather entrenched elites. Growing immigration challenges, the Biden administration's border woes are increasing as 2022 draws to a close. Citizen only voting is a hot topic on the ballot in Louisiana's upcoming special election. Calling it obvious propaganda, HBO is being blasted for a Nancy Pelosi documentary filmed by her own daughter. Charging pure cowardice, the White House is being criticized for its pathetic reaction to protests in China. And Tucker Carlson points out that Apple is now an active collaborator with China's murderous police state. Appealing to the governor, Joan Panay's father made a bold move, as he says, time is running out. One might assume time has already run out, but the investigation apparently continues. In cancel culture wars, a comedian who said local officials pressured a New Jersey venue into canceling his shows fears the government will abuse its power to censor comics. We've gone from liberal activists convincing business owners not to host us all the way to city government officials essentially racketeering and threatening the venue owners if they're willing to allow us to perform and speak. A Los Angeles-based comedian, Josh Denny, told Fox News, cancel culture will come for the comedians first and then everyone else is going to be at the mercy of people abusing their office as a power to exercise their own political beliefs. Denny went on to say, we're going to take a quick break, but we will return in a moment. Also later this hour, Joel Rosenberg. And at the end of today's program, a reflection on Advent. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the immigration case of the, uh, the United States versus Texas. Oral arguments began on Tuesday at the Supreme Court in the case in which Texas and Louisiana are fighting against the Biden administration's policy of prioritizing certain illegal immigrants for deportation, leaving the state to fend for themselves against the huge number of immigrants in their states. The issue at hand was catalyzed by the uh, September 2021 memorandum from Security Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, in which he argued, we do not have the resources to apprehend and seek the removal of every one of these non-citizens. Therefore, we need to exercise our discretion and determine whom to prioritize for immigration enforcement action, end quote. Uh, the case, United States versus Texas, has the potential to upend federal immigration policy. We'll follow the story as it develops. Homebuyers have to earn six figures to afford a median priced house these days. Prices skyrocketed by 45 percent from 2021. Homebuyers here in the U.S. have to earn the six figure salary in order to afford a median priced home. According to an analysis from real estate brokerage Redfin, as housing prices remain elevated and the monthly mortgage payments on the typical home surges more than 45 percent since the same time period last year. Uh, the annual salary required to afford such a property has increased from two thousand six hundred and eight um, and eighty two 
um, dollars uh, annually to much higher. Average hourly wages have nominally increased 5% over the same period as inflation continues to erode consumer purchasing power. More Americans than ever are choosing to be alone, which leads to anxiety and depression. The Washington Post reports the COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on the social lives of many. Cancellations, closures, fear of a potential deadly infection led us to hunker down and avoid acquaintances, co-workers, and extended family. Time spent with friends went down. Time spent alone went up and now for the scarier news our social lives were withering dramatically before COVID-19 anyway one reporter at the post uh, Derek Thompson said this is a 100% chance that this uh, graph is a core reason for America's surge in anxiety and depression time spent with other people has plummeted for every age group ethnicity gender geography and income level Disney's Bob Iger says he was sorry to see the company enter the political arena. The clues as to Iger's plans for Disney during his two-year return stint came from his first town hall meeting with uh, Walt Disney Company employees in which he answered several questions on some recent Disney controversies, including the losing fights it picked with Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Christopher Rufo says Iger expressed regret that Disney engaged in the high-profile fight against the governor DeSantis, which resulted in the state legislative legislature rather stripping the company of its special administrative status. I was very sorry to see us dragged into that battle. 303 Creative is fighting for First Amendment rights before the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday. Attention, this case carries massive First Amendment implications. The most significant uh, case we have had in years on the subject, Alliance Defending Freedom has weighed in. Lori Smith is an artist who runs her own design studio, 303 Creative. She specializes in graphic and website design and loves to visually convey messages in every site she creates. She was excited to expand her portfolio to create websites that celebrate marriage between a man and a woman, but Colorado made clear that she was not welcome in that space. A Colorado law is censoring what Lori wants to say and requiring her to create designs that violate her beliefs about marriage. In July of last year, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit ruled against her, holding that Colorado can force her to create websites promoting messages that contradict her beliefs about marriage. Well, in the uh, the case, Scott's blog, um, before the Supreme Court, that uh, will be uh, decided upon on December 5th, the justices will hear oral arguments on 303 Creative and Alanis, a, a clash between free speech rights and LGBTQ rights on the RNC's self postmortem with the midterm elections failing to generate the anticipated red wave. The Republican National Committee decided to hire outside help to determine what went wrong and how to remedy it in the future. The RNC has formed the Republican Party Advisory Council to accomplish this task. As we assess the midterms and plan for 2024, they write, we are gathered to gathering a diverse range of respected leaders in our movement to join together and help chart a winning course in the years to come. That's a quote from RNC chair Ronna McDaniel. I am thrilled that this talented group of Republicans will be shoulder to shoulder with us as we work to grow our party, hold Democrats accountable and elect Republicans, end quote. Among the group of outsiders advising the RNC, uh, it's bringing together a Family Research Council, President, uh, President Tony Perkins, former 
Donald Trump White House advisor Kellyanne Conway. Another advisor has recently defeated Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters, who lost a tight election to Democrat incumbent Mark Kelly. Masters advised that Republicans need to avoid one-size-fits-all strategies, arguing our party needs to modernize. We're fighting against big tech, the media, and now the Democrats' GoTV early voting machine. The council is expected to deliver its finding and recommendations early next year. In the meantime, um, Mike uh, Lindell is also running for RNC chair. A fraudulent voter has been sentenced to 15 years. A Georgia man, William Chase, was recently convicted of voter fraud as he illegally voted twice in the same election and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. A 62-year-old was caught when a voter who uh, had requested an absentee ballot contacted the county elections office after noticing that her husband's ballot had been received, but hers had failed to arrive. It was soon discovered that her absentee ballot had, in fact, been sent in, but the signature on the ballot was not hers. Following an investigation that included fingerprint analysis, it was conclusively determined that Mr. Chase had intentionally stolen her ballot and cast her vote while also casting his own. Election denier Representative Hakeem Jeffries is expected to be the uh, Democrat leader and was uh, confirmed today. Democrats have doubled GOP spending on Georgia's runoff ads. And Hollywood bombed at the box office over Thanksgiving weekend. It was the worst non-COVID showing since 1994. Chinese police or police rather are tracking down COVID protesters after days of unrest. And the Pentagon finds China used a botched Afghanistan withdrawal to score propaganda points. China is on pace to match the U.S. nuclear stockpile by 2035, the Pentagon warns. And former Chinese President Jiang Zemin has died at 96. The Netherlands um, has closed 3,000 farms in order to comply with the EU climate rules. A missing Texas toddler was reunited with her family 51 years later. And in a bit of humor, Tim Cook says he's ready to pull Twitter from the App Store once President Xi gives the order. Well, on this day in history, 1782, the United States and Britain signed preliminary peace articles in Paris for ending the Revolutionary War. The Treaty of Paris would be signed in September 1783. 1835, Samuel Longhorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, is born in Florida, Missouri. 1939, the Winter War begins as Soviet troops invade Finland. The conflict would end the following March with a Soviet victory. 1960, the last DeSoto is built by Chrysler, which had decided to retire the brand after 32 years. 1966, the former British colony of Barbados becomes independent. 1981, the United States and the Soviet Union opened negotiations in Geneva, aiming to reduce nuclear weapons in Europe. 1982, the Michael Jackson album Thriller is released by Epic Records. 1993, President Bill Clinton signs the Brady Bill, which requires a five-day waiting period for handgun purchases and background checks for prospective buyers. The year 2000, Al Gore's lawyers battle for his political survival in the Florida and U.S. Supreme Courts. Meanwhile, GOP lawmakers in Tallahassee, they moved to award the presidency to George W. Bush in case the courts did not appoint their own slate of electors. 2004, Jeopardy fans see Ken Jennings' 74-game winning streak end as he loses to real estate agent Nazi Zerg. 2008, Space Shuttle Endeavor returns to Earth after a nearly 16-day mission to repair and upgrade the International Space Station. Also in 2008, the world's most comprehensive legalized heroin program becomes permanent with overwhelming approval from Swiss voters who simultaneously 
reject the decriminalization of marijuana. 2013, Paul Crouch, 79, an American televangelist who built what has been called the world's largest Christian broadcasting network, dies in Orange County, California, or rather Orange, California. And 2017, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi calls on veterans Democrat Congressman John Conyers to resign in the face of multiple accusations of misconduct. Conyers would resign five days later. Up next, we're going to hear from Joel Rosenberg, his book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest, Joel Rosenberg, has released his newest nonfiction book, The First in Several Years. Enemies and Allies is the title of the book, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Well, it skillfully and clearly explains the importance of the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. It explores vital questions about the threats posed by radical and apocalyptic Islamism and the efforts to make peace in the Middle East 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the U.S. It examines the grave and growing Iranian threat and is the first book to explain the inside story of how the game-changing Abraham Accords came to pass. It includes exclusive, never-before-published interviews, insights, analysis from his conversations with some of the most complex and controversial leaders in the world. It is fascinating, as Rosenberg books always are. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times bestselling author of 15 novels, five nonfiction books, and nearly five million copies have been sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. He and his wife live with their family in Jerusalem. He joins us today to talk about his latest, Enemies and Allies. Joel Rosenberg, welcome back. Georgine, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely. Well, it's always a thrill when we hear a Rosenberg <laughs> Rosenberg book has come out. And before the ink is dry, we're trying to arrange an interview. So I appreciate the time that you have taken mm, to, you. to join us here today. Um, we are in the in the middle of a, an evacuation, if you will, from Afghanistan that has left many Americans in the uh, on the eve of the um, September 11th 20th anniversary wondering where we stand as a nation what's likely to happen in the middle east let's begin where your book begins in the first part the threats that we have faced and may face in the future what are the most serious threats that we face today in the middle east particularly given what's just happened in afghanistan well i hate to say this georgine but uh, but we better start with the 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 central threat here, and that's President Joe Biden. And by that, I mean the threat in the Middle East that that we have to fear and we have to deal with is radical Islamism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but the the worst thing that you can do in the central theme of enemies and allies is this, to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Right. We were blindsided by Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. We were blindsided by Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda 20 years ago tomorrow, uh, Saturday. But we all as Americans have been blindsided now by a president who has surrendered. 
to a radical Islamist terror regime that we spent 20 years, almost 2,500 American courageous men and women fighting, and almost two trillion dollars, and the country was stable. So the Afghanistan had been won. Now to be, it's Afghanistan. I've been there. I've spent time with the tribal Muslim leaders there. I've spent time with Afghan Christians on the ground there. It's not Paris. You know, it's not like liberating Paris from the Nazis. And then you're like sitting at a cafe saying, oh, this is lovely. This is Paris. It's Afghanistan. I get it. It's not pretty. But it was stable. American soldiers and people were not dying. And, and the President Biden walked in, pulled out the critical Jenga stick, and the whole thing has collapsed. On the eve of 9-11. Now, when you have someone who completely doesn't get it uh, in the White House, this is incredibly dangerous because while the Taliban is bad, if, if Biden can't deal with the Taliban, how is he going to deal with the nuclear apocalyptic tyrants that are in Tehran? That's what terrifies me. Um, and I... I can't say I'm surprised, but I'm horrified and angered. And, I, 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 you know, oh, my God, we have a president who, who just surrendered a $2 trillion, 2,500 soldier and marine investment. Yep. What in the world is he doing? Leaving our equipment behind and our people behind as well. Now, you made reference to Iran and uh, Iran is, a, is, is an existential threat, not just to the United States, not just to Israel, but among Muslim nations with whom uh, leaders you have met. Uh, talk a bit about Iran and the role that they are playing in destabilizing the region, while at the same time uh, contributing to some of the, the Arab and Muslim nations seeking peace. Well, that's right. And what Enemies and Allies does I, is I, I take you inside the palaces and the presidential compounds in the most powerful uh, American allied countries in the Middle East, obviously Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Ruby Rivlin, but also the Saudi leaders, the Bahraini leaders, the Emirati leaders, the Jordanian leaders, the uh, Egyptian leaders at the top, like kings, crown princes, presidents and prime ministers. And I asked them, what do you think about Iran? Let me give you, and they, and they spoke to me on the record. This is the only book of its kind. There's not a, single book out there where an author could spend hours and hours and hours with the main leaders in our alliance. And all of them made it clear that they worry that American leaders, not all of them, but, but, but many, don't understand the threat from Iran. Uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, said the supreme leader of Iran is the new Hitler. Now, you would expect that from me. <laughs> You'd expect that from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But Saudi Arabia is, you know, the fountainhead of Mecca and Medina. It's the, they're the caretakers, the custodians of Islam in the world. They, you know, uh, on 9-11, 20 years ago, Osama bin Laden, a Saudi. 15 of the 19 hijackers, Saudi. So here's the head of Saudi Arabia telling me a Jewish evangelical Israeli sitting in the palace on the record that, Iran is so dangerous, and it's being led by the new Hitler. It gives you a sense. I totally agree with him, by the way. And this is, and to summarize it in one phrase, what I fear, what uh, sorry, uh, Netanyahu fears, what MBS fears, what everybody fears, is a nuclear 9-11. Hmm. And God forbid Biden get blindsided by that. Hmm. 
Talk a little bit about the Russian-Iranian axis and the potential of Turkey joining that alliance. Well, that's interesting, right? Because so for the last 20 years, there's always been the risk that Iran was going to get nuclear weapons, right? But and so a lot of people say, like, Joel, haven't you said every now and then or quoted people saying, you know, they're just a few years away? That's true. Why haven't they gotten it? Why hasn't Iran gotten the bomb yet? Well, because bad things seem to happen to their nuclear scientists. You know, they don't they just disappear or they die mysteriously. Like, Georgine, I don't think I recommend that you go into the life insurance business in Iran if you're trying to sell policies to the Iranian nuclear scientists because they just don't last that long. Uh, Their equipment blows up. Their computers malfunction. What's happening? Uh, The United States, Israel, the Arab countries are secretly sabotaging and perhaps even assassinating a, a lot of these leaders. That's what slowed this down. I say that as the prelude to your question. Because what's happened is, and I describe this in great detail Mm -hmm. in the first section of Enemies and Allies, what Iran has done has decided we need to build alliances with America's worst enemies. Uh, Russia, a nuclear power. China, a nuclear armed power. North Korea, a nuclear armed power. Turkey, which is not exactly a nuclear armed power, has the largest military in Europe. And that's what is happening. Iran is building these close ties with people they totally disagree with ideologically, politically, and have had huge conflicts with with historically. But they all hate America. They all hate the West. And they're all banding together in an incredibly dangerous alliance. And that's something that I, I don't see people talking about. They talk about Iran almost as though Iran's operating by itself. Mm-hmm. But it's Putin. Vladimir Putin in Moscow that's selling Iran nuclear technology that has sent Russian nuclear scientists to work in Iran's uh, illegal nuclear industry. Uh, it's Putin who's selling advanced weapon systems to Iran and running political interference at the UN for Iran. So Iran's not just not trying to do this by itself. It has major players on its team, and we need to wake up and understand what's going on. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Some fascinating conversations he has had with world leaders. We'll talk about that when we return. We need to take a break for a news and traffic at the top of the hour, but we'll be back with more Joel Rosenberg. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book just released, Enemies and Allies. Now, we know what happens in the Middle East, for better or for worse, affects the entire world. Rosenberg, in his book, says uh, that he takes you inside the royal courts and capitals and introduces you, the reader, to the most powerful figures in the region. In the second half of your book, The Opportunities, you share some of the encounters you have had with the Saudi crown prince, with the United Arab Emirates crown prince, with Egyptian President Abdul, with President Donald Trump, Jordan's King Abdullah, with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, the U.S. Secretary of State, former CIA director, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and more. This is really an, an amazing list of who's who. Can you kind of walk us through how these encounters, I mean, you're an evangelical uh, man with a Jewish background. 
how these encounters began. I think it started with the um, uh, the Prince uh, Abdullah, Jordan's uh, King Abdullah. Yeah, that's right, Georgie. And you remember from a number of years ago, I had written um, a, a trilogy of novels in which ISIS, the, the terror group, uh, captures chemical, chemical weapons in Syria and that then starts planning attacks against the United States, against Israel, and against Jordan. And in the course of those three novels, uh, uh, ISIS plots the assassination and tries to assassinate uh, King Abdullah of Jordan and blow up his palace and take over his kingdom. Now, what I did was, he, he, King Abdullah is such a fascinating figure. He was the former head of special forces. He was a commando. He never planned to be a king. Uh, but he, he, he wanted to be in the military his whole life. His uncle was the crown prince. But at the last minute, his father, King Hussein, made Abdullah the, the, the crown prince, and he became the king when the, when the king died. So what happened? I made him a character by name in my series. Now, that's not the brightest move, perhaps, <laughs> Georgine, if you, if you live across the river from a man who, you know, you're, you're, in the novel, people are trying to kill him, and they're blowing up his palace. Now, what happened is one of his advisors read the book, one of the books, and, and then gave it to the king and said, Your Majesty, you have to read this. And he said, why? He said, because you're in it. He said, what do you mean I'm in it? It looks like a novel, a political thriller. He goes, yeah, but you're a character in the book. He said, what? So he takes two days and he reads the entire novel. And rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, <laughs> which he really could have done, he invited my wife and me to come for five days to get to know him and his inner circle. And I tell this story in the book. It's so fascinating. We, when, we, when we had lunch with him, we had lunch, we had dinner, we, we went to a military training exercise with him. He put us in his own helicopter and sent us all over the country to meet people and learn things. But when we had our first lunch with him, he said, you know, Joel, I was wondering where it would be fun to meet you for the first time. And I thought when I got up this morning, you know, he did blow up my palace in his book. Maybe I should bring him to the palace. And uh, you could see, I said, well, it is lovely, your majesty. And, and he said, I see that you made me a character, but my staff, you fictionalized their names. But I can see who's who. So I bought copies of your book, Joel, and I've given them to my staff. And I'll, I'll say to somebody, hey, you're, this is you on page 47. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. You might want to read that. <laughs> Just a very funny Interesting, moderate Muslim monarch. What in the world am I doing there? But it was a novel that actually that piqued his interest, invited me in, and I said, hey, would you be interested in meeting other American evangelical leaders who love Israel, but, would, but they need to understand the perspective that you have? And he said, Let, he said, let's put together a delegation together, and I'll welcome them here into Jordan. And that's what we did, and I... I ended up leading six of those types of delegations to all these different countries at varying invitations. And it was absolutely fascinating. And in Enemies and Allies, I, I tell those stories. Yeah, and it really is fascinating, first of all, how you got there, how you gained an audience with these uh, these individuals who would not, one would assume, be inclined to meet with you and right. then to meet with other evangelical leaders. Among those um, uh, presidents and and dignitaries that you met with um meeting with the uh with the um oh, I'm, I'm my mind is gone blank um 
You're probably thinking of the Saudi crown prince. Thank you. That is exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. Yes, yeah. talk well, a little bit about that, how that came about, and really kind of the, the prelude to uh, the, the notion of peace with Israel came up long before it was a popularized subject across the globe. Well, that's right, because, because I actually have to start slightly back before that, because we went to the United Arab Emirates, and we were the first Christian delegation ever to be invited to meet with the crown prince there, whose name is Mohammed bin Zayed. MBZ. And in the course of our conversation with him for two hours, you know, it wasn't a five minute photo op or a cup of coffee. It was two hours together with him. And he's, and I said to him, listen, you need to understand something about evangelicals. We love Israel. You can't shake us on that because, you know, because the UAE didn't have a peace treaty at that point with Israel. I said, we, we love Israel theologically. It's, it's in our Theological, biblical DNA. So it's not political. So you just need to know that. Now, the second thing you need to know is that Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. So we we do love our neighbors, and we don't have an exact plan how to make peace with the Palestinians. But but we want you to know it's not a zero sum game. And third, we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we're looking. It's been a long time since an Arab leader made peace with Israel. Who's going to be next? And he, MBZ, leaned forward and said, it's going to be me, Joel. Hmm. I'm ready. We said, what? And so we ended up having this fascinating conversation. Now, that conversation at the time was off the record. So we had this huge headline, United Arab Emirates is going to make peace, but we couldn't come out and say it. And we kept our word to him. And, and last August, a year ago August, sure enough, MBZ, uh, working with Netanyahu and President Trump, announced that he was making peace with Israel. And I was at that signing ceremony at the White House on September 15th of last year. And so that set into motion us going to Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis are not yet ready to make peace with Israel. But I think they're actually weighing it. And you look at their actions, they they didn't put the kibosh on for their countries making peace with Israel last year. They could have. Right. They could have thrown sand in the eyes, you know, throw a monkey wrench into the system. They didn't. In fact, they publicly praised these four countries. What's more, they're allowing Israeli planes to fly over Saudi Arabia for the first time in history mm-hmm. to get to the United Arab Emirates. And third, Crown Prince MBS, with whom I had not just one meeting, but on two trips, he invited me hours and hours with him and even more hours with his inner circle. He had a a secret meeting last December with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, Israel's uh, Secret Services spy chief, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I can't tell you the details of that trip, but I can tell you that these signs are public and slightly private evidences that the Saudis are moving. They're moving towards seeing Israel not as an enemy, but as an ally, and I'm telling you, these are game-changing developments in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely. And this is the only book that tells the story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what role would you say Iran plays in that decision to consider or, or at least move in the direction of uh, considering peace with Israel? Is it fear of Iran? Is it a recognition that peace is in their best interest? What's the combination of things that, that would lead um, this leader to consider reconciling to some degree uh, with what had been their enemy? 
that's a great question, Georgine, and I do I do deal with that um, at length and I, in the book. And I and I'll just say this: I think there are multiple factors. First, um, you know, MBS, just like these other leaders, they're much younger. That used to be mm-hmm. Arab leaders, you know, or, or like Soviet leaders. You know, they're in their 80s or whatever, and they're they're just from a different era. MBS is young. He's trying to change his country's economy and society. He wants women to drive. He wants them people to go to the movie theaters. He's open. There haven't been movie theaters in Saudi Arabia in 50 years. So he's making all these social changes. He wants to be a country where you'd want to come visit. You'd want to come and to invest. So there's partly that dynamic. He wants to be a Muslim who likes Christians and Jews and welcomes them to the palace and welcomes them to the kingdom. So that's real good, and it's never happened before. But the larger issue, as you say, is Iran. Ultimately, Saudi Arabia has to figure out what the others are deciding, which is, is Israel an enemy like we've thought for the last hundred years, or are they an ally? And as President Biden retreats and abandons the Middle East, um, then the question is, if America's not going to be here to help us against Iran, maybe we need to, maybe the Arab world needs to join forces with the one country that has the will, the, the, the motive, and the means to defend themselves, ourselves, as Israelis against this Iranian nuclear threat, because Iran could, if they get the bomb, create a second Holocaust. And so I think the Saudis are actively weighing this. Could I tell you when they're going to make their decision? I can't, but I'm praying for peace and I'm watching very closely. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies, another must read, very timely book, an unforgettable journey inside the fast moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. We'll be back with more Joel Rosenberg. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. He has written a book, Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. He's a New York Times best-selling author. He's based in Jerusalem. He skillfully and clearly explains the sometimes encouraging and sometimes violent yet rapidly shifting landscape in Israel and the Arab Muslim world. Uh, He continues the conversation we began in the first hour of today's program. This is such a fascinating book. And as we are just days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11, as you talk about Saudi Arabia, there are questions being raised about the role they played in uh, 9-11 uh, 20 years ago. In fact, um, uh, 9-11 families have asked the president not to attend events over the weekend uh, until it's made clear what role the Saudis played in all of that. Your thoughts on uh, the role that they might have played there and where they stand 20 years hence? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, Georgina, I have not seen any solid evidence that the, the Saudi government has actively or even passively played a role in, in planning and orchestrating and assisting and aiding and abetting al-Qaeda in any of that uh, attack. Um, and just the opposite, I think you'd have to say, you know, the Saudis, uh, you know, we were their biggest purchaser of oil. And so it would be not clear why the Saudi government would send, encourage, assist uh, terrorists to go blow up their number one 
economic partner and ally. And don't forget, it was U.S. forces who, you know, uh, saved Saudi Arabia when Saddam Hussein was invading Kuwait and was getting ready to invade Saudi Arabia. We sent a half million soldiers to the region, and, and many of them were based in Saudi Arabia, to protect Saudi Arabia. So just to be clear, there's, there, did they have the means to do it? Yes. Did they have the motive to do it? No, they did not. Now, that being said, uh, what Saudi Arabia's government was guilty of was allowing a, 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 a climate to fester in the mosques, in the schools of hatred for Jews, hatred for Israel, um, a deep-seated negativity towards the West, even towards America. You know, so the government was pro-American, but there was a, but, but violent or at least, let's say at least extremist Wahhabi Islam was being taught in the schools and in the mosques, and the Saudis didn't crush that, didn't deal with that. Now, Mohammed bin Salman is doing that now. He's fired more than 3,000 clerics who are extremists and won't change. He's changing the textbooks to get rid of the anti-Jewish, anti-Christian, anti-Western language, which is super important. Um, He's welcoming Christians and Jews into the kingdom. So I think there's a sea change of positive reform going on. But believe me, Saudi Arabia has a long way to go. I don't want to you know, paint too rosy a picture, mm-hmm. but it's the most significant change in the history of Saudi Arabia, and it's going in the right direction. I think we should encourage it, um, not um, castigate it and isolate it like President Biden, who has called Saudi Arabia a pariah state, even though he's dealing with Iran, whose president is on our U.S. sanctions list for murdering 30,000 Iranians. So what in the world is going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. Now, we sort of alluded to this in our conversation earlier uh, on the program, but let's talk about the Abraham Accords. At the time uh, it, it took place, um, the media here in the U.S. was loath to give uh, President Trump any credit for a role that he might have played in all of that. Uh, there've been, uh, there had been talk of a Nobel Peace Prize, although it's unlikely because he's Donald Trump that that uh, would have taken place. Talk a little bit about the Arab Accords and whether or not it was a big deal or not. The Abraham Accords is they are a huge deal, and not only President Trump, but um, his team and Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu at UAE uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who, as I told you, told me two years before he did it that he was going to do it, mm-hmm. and he did it, and the Bahrainis and the Sudanese and the Americans. Look, they all deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. This is, we haven't seen an a, a Arab-Israeli peace treaty since 1994. Some of your listeners weren't even born when the last peace treaty was. That was between Jordan and Israel. And before that, you have to go back to 1979 between Egypt and Israel. That takes another swath of your, your, your radio listeners like, okay, I wasn't born then either. So... What I'm saying is this is a big deal, and it came from a, an American president who – even I, I, I was a never-Trumper in 2016, and I, I, I admit that in the book. And in fact, I told the president that when I met with him to talk to him about these issues in the Oval Office. But I told President Trump, look, I, I was very critical of you because I didn't trust you. I didn't believe you. I didn't think you could make these changes, and you are doing it, and it's huge. And – 
you know, for all the naysayers, right? President Biden says, hey, I got 50 years of experience. And Trump has none. Okay, but, but Trump got four Arab Israeli peace treaties done, and nobody thought he could do it. And Biden has surrendered to a radical Islamist terrorist group that was living in the caves last month. So does experience matter or wisdom and judgment? Yeah, we'll leave that a rhetorical question, but I think we know uh, what the answer is. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I have still criticisms of Trump's the yes. way he would speak or his tweets or, you know, even some of the policies, including, let's, let's be honest, President Trump wanted to get all of U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. But to, so, so I disagreed with that, and I was public about my disagreement. But here's the difference. Trump listened to his advisors. He listened to his generals who said, Mr. President, we can, we can dial down the number of forces, but let's be honest, the situation would, is like pulling out a Jenga stick. You'll collapse the system if you move too fast and if the Afghanis are not ready. They're more ready than they were a few years ago, but it's still, it's still sensitive. So don't go too fast. Trump listened. Biden didn't. And I, and I think what you're watching with President Biden is he's so sure that he has all this 50 years of experience and that he's right. But what you have is ignorance of radical Islamism, incompetence in foreign policy matched with hubris. That's a very dangerous combination. And in Enemies and Allies, I note that there are a number of good, really good things that Biden has done over the years in foreign policy, even in the Middle East. But most of his instincts have been wrong. Mm -hmm. Biden was against President Obama sending special forces into Pakistan to kill Osama bin Laden. Even Hillary, I point out in the book, supported that, that hit on bin Laden. Biden was against it. Biden supported and, in fact, advocated for the complete removal of all U.S. military forces from Iraq in 2011. Most of the cabinet was against it, or at least the major ones, Panetta, uh, Bob Gates. But, but Biden prevailed, and, and, and uh, Obama put Biden in charge of that ex- um, evacuation. Well, what happened in 2011? Well, we all, U.S. forces left. It created a vacuum. Al-Qaeda in Iraq morphed into something worse, ISIS, and began a genocidal campaign that took us almost 10 years to eradicate. But this is not Biden making it up as he goes along. He believes he's doing the right thing, and that's what makes him even more dangerous. Mm. We're talking with Joel Rosenberg. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest nonfiction book, Enemies and Allies, an unforgettable journey inside the fast-moving and immensely turbulent modern Middle East. Absolutely fascinating. We've talked a lot about some of the um, incredible leaders that you have met uh, in the Middle East, but you also took delegates, the delegations of evangelical leaders with you. Talk a bit about um, about that. First of all, the welcome they received and what the purpose of those meetings were. Happy to do that, uh, Georgine. This was fascinating because most of these Arab leaders, most of these countries, they had never invited evangelical Christians to meet with them ever. And, um, and 
they asked me to do this. Uh, I wanted to do it. And usually it would be between 10 and 12 of us that would go in, you know, enough that um, you get sort of a cross section. I mean, American evangelicalism, you know, in 60 million people. So it's hard to, to, uh, to do a good job with just 12 people. Um, but I try to get people, you know, men and women, people from different um, theological, uh, you know, sectors, um, different races, you know, people with different angles to understand what was going on, who would ask really good questions that would really open up conversations. We went primarily to deal with religious freedom issues, you know, with Saudi Arabia, the crown prince. We said, you know, with, with all due respect, you know, you don't have a single church building that operates on Saudi soil. Like, you know, we just came from the United Arab Emirates. They have 700 freely operating churches. In Egypt, President el-Sisi, a devout Muslim, has built the largest church building in the history of the Middle East. And he asked us to come, and we were there when he gave it to the 17 million Christians of Egypt on Christmas Eve, like, as a present. Like, why don't you have any churches in Saudi Arabia, and can we work on changing that? You know, so we got to have those type of conversations in Saudi Arabia. They told us, there hasn't been a Christian delegation invited to the palace to meet the top leadership in the entire 300 years since the Saud family has been in power. Like, that's just an amazing thing mm-hmm. that we got to do it. So we were advancing religious freedom, advancing human rights. Um, we were advocating, of course, for peace with Israel. And we wanted to understand how they were changing their textbooks and how they were changing you know, how they were fighting radical extremism. And in every country had a slightly different flavor. We focused on slightly different topics, but, but overall, no Christian has ever gotten to do it. And we were just totally blessed by God. I, I can't explain really, except for we prayed for these open doors and God said, yes, but I, there's no reason why a Joel Rosenberg, Jewish, evangelical, American, Israeli, I'm not a billionaire. I don't have a huge political movement behind me. I, I you know, and at one level you'd say, well, what, what do they see out of this? What, what was in it for them? Well, honestly, they are trying to reach out to the American people and they're trying to show the American people that they're not the Arab leaders of 20 years ago, that they've made huge changes. Now, Honestly, Georgine, there is a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And we've told them respectfully, but directly, listen, you're not doing good in this, this, in this area. And I say these things honestly in the book, like I'm not going to pull my punches, but I'll do it respectfully because I want to engage them. But, but I'm not satisfied with the reforms they've made, but I, I, am, I do praise the ones that are good. And there are so many that are good that most Americans don't know. 20 years ago, we were all saying, hey, where are the Muslims who are saying, what the heck? You know, why, why aren't Muslims standing up and fighting against these radicals? And today, there's a lot of leaders who are doing just that. And their stories need to be told. And then we need to keep pressing them for more change. We're talking with uh, Joel Rosenberg. His book is titled Enemies and Allies. It's nonfiction. Just fascinating uh, what God is doing in that region and how he has used him and other evangelicals. Uh, to connect with uh, leaders in the Middle East. What do you see in terms of the future of peace in the Middle East? I'm reminded of the scripture that says, you know, peace, peace. And then, 
you know, all hell literally breaks loose. What do you see it, with in the short term and perhaps the long term, uh, the future of peace in the Middle East? Well, the Bible certainly describes in Daniel chapter 9 that there will be a deceptive, even demonic peace that will lure Israel into thinking that this is a good thing, but in fact, it'll be a trap. But, the, but Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? King David told, commanded us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes. Paul told us to, you know, as long as it depends on us, make peace with all men. So when we pray for peace and we advocate for peace, and then Arab-Israeli peace happened, let's not be cynical and say, well, that's, that's the Antichrist doing it. I'm like, we're not, we're not there yet. And, and it's almost like praying for Peter to be released from prison. And when he knocks on the front door, like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not really Peter. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if, if God answers our prayers and advances peace and security, we should be grateful and realize this doesn't happen easily. God is moving and attitudes are changing. I'm not saying it's perfect. This book, Enemies and Allies, talks about how dangerous a moment it is because Iran is getting closer and closer to, to the bomb. But some really good things are happening. And we don't have time to get all into all of it. There's, there's more religious freedom in the region for Christians than ever in human history. And I would say that we're also seeing more Muslims and Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in human history. There's some extraordinary things, but you're not going to hear this on the NBC Nightly News. You're not going to see this um, on the front page of the Washington Post or even probably um, the the Portland Press or what's the, I'm not sure what the local paper is, but you know, it's unlikely that in Seattle and Portland and some of our Mm -hmm. friends up with you all up in the Northwest, that they are watching for this or caring about it, but we need to care. And why do we need to care what's happening in the Middle East? Because it's not Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. (laughs) But what happens in the Middle East, as we've just seen in the last few days and weeks, it affects us all. It affects our sons and daughters who serve in the military. It affects our gas prices. It affects our budgets when we have to spend $2 trillion to go defend ourselves. Like, this stuff matters, and this is the only book that gives you an update right now. What's happening, and who's who in the in in the theater uh, of operations? There, let me take you inside the palaces and have the most interesting on-the-record conversations that a normal person like you and me is ever going to get. Yeah, it really is fascinating. I don't know how you manage to do it every time, but it really is. Uh, fascinating. And I would encourage our listeners to to read the book, Enemies and Allies. Our brief conversation cannot um, provide all of the detailed information that you place in the book. Now, w- when your readers finish the book, what do you hope they ultimately come away with? Well, uh, first of all, with a, a, a clear sense of, of why the Middle East matters and, and what we should be supporting, you know, regardless of which party you're in, you know, we need Democrats to be pressing Biden and saying, look, we want Biden to succeed. I Look, me, Joel, a Republican, I want Biden to succeed. I, I'm not a cynic. I'm a critic, okay? I'm critical of what the president's doing, just as I was critical at times of what Trump did. I want Biden to change. We Democrats need to press 
Biden to, you know, to not go down the road of appeasing Iran, but instead strengthen our alliances with Israel and the Arab world, help the Saudis make peace. This is, these are good things, and they should be bipartisan. So yes. that's the main thing. And then for Christians, I encourage, and I explain it in the book, I would encourage you to not just, not just pray, but financially give to Christian ministries who are embattled um, on the ground in the region. My organization, the Joshua Fund, has raised more than $80 million over the last 15 years to strengthen our brothers and sisters on the ground. And that's one way that my wife and I and our team try to do something practical, not just to educate people, but to mobilize them to make an actual specific and tangible difference. Well, I am so grateful for your writing, but also grateful for the work that you do and the challenge that you pose to to Christians who really do care and want to do something constructive. Joel Rosenberg, thank you so much. Oh, such an honor, Georgina. I love being with you. I, I wish it was in person next year. Yeah. In Portland. Let's let's do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Right. Bye bye. Thank you. Once again, Joel Rosenberg, his latest book, Enemies and Allies. The book is published by Tyndale House. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, I wanted to end the program with excerpts from Hannah Anderson's Heaven and Nature Sing, Advent, Advent Reflections, published by Broadman and Holdman. She writes on the subject of family tree. Sometime last year, my husband Nathan returned from his parents' house in the mountains with a cardboard mailing tube. It was obviously repurposed with the words crossed out next to them or his um, dad's mother had written two genealogy charts somewhat finished to be researched inside we found the aforementioned charts one of his grandmother's ancestry somewhat finished and one of this grandfather's to be researched on nathan's side germany is the keeper of the family history and grandma watches over it over the last few decades she devoted significant time to tracking down marriage certificates land transfers and newspaper clippings because of her we know that nathan's great great grandfather immigrated from denmark and wrote for his bride to follow we know that he could apply for the sons of the revolution and perhaps most interestingly at least to my children we know rumors of the long lost estate somewhere in england that was the inheritance of a certain third son of a certain lord who escaped a political disturbance by coming to the colonies so when i unrolled the chart i was surprised to find large sections of them blank Unlike a family tree that branches uh, to show the offspring of a particular couple, these were ancestral fan charts. They were laid out in semicircle, documenting the ancestors of one specific person by marking preceding generations with concentric rings, much of the same way the rings of a tree mark its age. But on these charts, almost every line past five or six generations, roughly 200 years, was blank. Despite decades of research, it was patently obvious how much we didn't know, how much we would never know. Our family's dilemma is not uncommon in modern society, particularly for those of us whose ancestors moved or were forcibly removed during the age of migration and colonization. For my family, life in the new world meant leaving behind particular ethnic traditions and national loyalties to be eventually integrated into the racial and national categories of American society. So while I treasure family stories and I can make some vague claim of being Swiss German or Scottish Irish, I really don't know much about my heritage beyond a couple hundred years. The fragility of generational identity hit home for me on a recent family trip to Northern California. 
We'd stopped at several groves of coastal redwoods, those towering old-growth hardwoods whose size is matched only by their age. Every so often, we'd come across a giant cross-section cut from a fallen tree. With its rings exposed, you could literally see the centuries, even millennia, as each centric circle marked a growing season. And to make sure we got the point, many of those giant slabs also had metal plates marking historic events that occurred during the tree's lifetime. With the outermost ring being moved toward the center, World War II, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Boston Tea Party, the invention of the printing press, the Magna Carta, and so on and so forth, all the way to the birth of Jesus himself. As fascinating as it was to view these living records of history, it was also incredibly humbling, especially when I realized that my knowledge of my own generational rings would have reached only a few inches from the circumference. But what does this have to do with Christmas? In Genesis 3, God promised that the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head and turn back the curse. In other words, God promised to work generationally. And while Genesis 4 hints that Eve may have thought her firstborn was the promised son, time would prove redemption to be much more expansive and much more enduring than anyone could imagine. When you read the records of Jesus' ancestry in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you're reading more than a list of names. You're counting the rings of a family tree that represents the outworking of God's plan of redemption, a plan that reaches back through the nation of of Israel, through the covenants with David, Abraham, and Noah, all the way to the garden. But like our personal family histories, the story of redemption is far from seamless, because over the years of waiting, many generations lost hope. In the waiting, in the longing, they gave up. They turned from God and his promise and turned to idols to live for the present moment. They abandoned God's ways and forgot the coming son. As a result, they suffered judgment. Faithful prophets went silent. The temple was desecrated and the people scattered. Their homeland became prey for foreign invaders until, in the words of Isaiah 6:11, the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses without people. The land is ruined and desolate. Describing this work of judgment, Isaiah likens it to a tree cut down. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. So if the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are rings of the tree of redemption, it's a tree that has been cut down. It's the story of generations displaced and a land decimated. Without a family, there is no promised son, and without a promised son, there is no redemption. It's a story that seems hopeless, almost. Because while Isaiah prophesied that generations would be cut down like a tree, he also prophesied that a remnant would remain, and that this holy seed is the stump. Despite all the loss, all the devastation, God had not abandoned his promise, and while we may be unfaithful to it, he is not. And one day, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. The story of Christmas is this. The tree is not dead. A shoot will live and grow and grow and grow. Until eventually others are grafted into the root, strangers and foreigners and all those who never thought they'd know family again, those who never dared to hope that life would run through them, 
until one day this tree grows so large and so old and so majestic that its branches fill the earth. When I think about this, how the work of God takes time, even generations, it quiets me. And when I think about how close it is, it all seemingly came to being undone, it humbles me. You and I are links in the chain of generations called to steward the fragile hope we received. The 70 or 80 years given to us on this earth pale in light of those who have come before us and those who will follow after. But more than this, our individual lives pale when compared to the God who sustains our hope. So whether his work happens over the course of a thousand years or one day, whether it is given to us to play a prominent role in it or simply to stand as a faithful witness to the promise, we will wait on him and we will wait in hope. The tree is not dead. The quiet, steady work that came before us will continue on after us. The quiet, steady work we do today, even if it's as simple as celebrating the promised son during this season, will echo through the years until one day we find ourselves gathered together with all those who have hoped in him, with all who have found him faithful from generation to generation. Once again, Hannah Anderson from her devotional, Heaven and Nature Sing. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.